it's a very arbitrary deadline, right? You run a campaign to be president for four years. And at the end of one year, everybody's like, did you do all the things? You know? <laughs> and that's not great. At the same time, it is an important milestone, especially when you're going into midterm elections. There are a lot of political realities here. So I don't think we're like dumb to think through this. But I also keep trying to remember that I think the standard is really hard to define. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Thank you for joining us here for another episode of Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. Today, as we are recording, is the one-year anniversary of Joe Biden's inauguration, so we're going to reflect on the successes and struggles of his first year in office, and we're going to do it in less than two hours, which is how long it took him to do that yesterday at a press conference. It's also the one-year anniversary of the swearing-in of our first female vice president, so we'll check in with Vice President Harris as well. And outside of politics, we're going to talk about Wordle, y'all. Who's playing Wordle? Everybody's playing Wordle. That's who's playing Wordle. Before we get started, thank you to everyone who has read our first book, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversations. And thank you so much to those of you who have left reviews of that book on Amazon. I don't know how to explain this to you because the publishing industry is very strange, but it is extremely helpful to us in advance of our second book coming out in May to have a lot of reviews on our first book. And so if you have read it, we would so appreciate even a one sentence review. It makes a big difference. And thank you for sharing it with your people and reading it in your church groups and books clubs and uh, businesses. We cannot get over the continued support for this book. It's had a much longer life than a lot of books get, and we're just really thankful for that. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. 
Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. On January 20th, 2021, Kamala Harris became the first female, first black, and first Asian American vice president. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Kamala Davy Harris, do solemnly swear. I, Kamala Davy Harris, do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I take this obligation freely. That I take this obligation freely. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. That I will well and faithfully discharge. That I will well and faithfully discharge. The duties of the office on which I am about to enter. The duties of the office upon which I am about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. So let's talk about that historic status, because I think it's hard to argue it has not led to increased scrutiny. I think that it has probably led to increased scrutiny in ways that we can't even comprehend. But the first guidepost to me is that we didn't talk about Mike Pence a year into the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. Now, some of that is because Trump just took up all the oxygen in the room. But I certainly have greater interest in what she's doing and how she's doing it than I've had in previous vice presidents. And there's a lot of expectation that gets wrapped up in that. So even if we took away racism, sexism, like, you know, media bias, whatever, of course, there would be increased scrutiny because it's something new and we're all watching it. And that comes from some good places, too. Well, I think it's two things. One is, look, The job of the vice president is just a tough one. You're supposed to be a leader, but also a follower (laughs) at the exact same time. Like your job is really to prop up the president. And that is just not a position that the American public rewards and its politicians. Right. Like they want that independent spirit and they want that feisty rhetoric. And it's just it's a very hard line to walk in the best of circumstances. It's particularly a fine line to walk if you are breaking all these glass ceilings. So you're the first, a long list of firsts. And I think it's tough because of her position 
in relationship to Biden, because Biden is so old and so many people are thinking, like, is he even going to run again? Is she the standard bearer? So there's I mean, from the second she got in here, I think there was not just the pressure of the historic status, but the pressure of like, what does this mean for 2024? What does this mean to 2028? I mean, I think that's true of most vice presidents, but particularly her because of Biden's age. Even in the two-hour press conference yesterday, he got a question like, will she be your running mate again? There's a lot weighing on her in particular as a vice president. And it's been clunky from the beginning because at first there was the question out there, is he going to run again? And now they're saying emphatically yes, and they started saying that pretty quickly. I think that's ludicrous, but we can put a pin in that. That's okay. And I think it has set her up for even more of a question of what is this role under President Biden? And then they start loading up her portfolio with seemingly impossible assignments that aren't messaged well in ways that cause her to get really bad press. I think specifically tying her to immigration in any form right out of the gate was a mistake. Mm -hmm. There is no success available. I wish that she could have gotten some quick wins. Like I thought she did a pretty nice job on one of her trips to Southeast Asia. That's the kind of thing the Space Council, you know, there are places where I think she could really shine if they would limit her portfolio um, and maybe make it a little complex, like not these hot button issues that people are really interested in, where she can kind of build some trust and, and get some successes under her belt, at least in the media. Well, and what I hadn't really thought about is that she is the tie-breaking vote in the Senate. I mean, it's not like I didn't know that, but we only really pay attention when it matters. But the truth is she has to be there a lot mm-hmm. over there breaking ties on judicial nominations. So she's really at the mercy of the Senate's very unpredictable schedule. She's cast 15 tie-breaking votes so far, more than any modern vice president. It limits her ability to do that sort of very rewarding, press-friendly, diplomatic travel. And I think that that's another, that's just like one more layer of complexity on this role. All these first, having such an old president, having a president that's been vice president and a successful vice president before, as well as being the tie-breaking vote in the Senate. And when you start to like put all those things together, you're like, well, dang, no wonder it's been clunky. I struggle with stories about her lack of preparation for meetings. Because I don't know if they're being fairly written or not, but that's not what I want to read, right? I, mm-hmm. I I want to see her as someone who's very competent, who's very prepared, who's taking it very seriously. I also don't see anybody playing to her strengths. So if she's going to have to often be the tie-breaking role in the Senate, embrace that fully. She was a senator. She's prepared for that. She built her national profile on being a very sharp questioner in hearings, and on her experience as a prosecutor, I don't understand why they aren't kind of building, playing to her strengths, like loading her up on domestic issues, issues related to the Department of Justice, issues related to the Senate. There's like a randomness to the things that she has been tasked with and to the times that they have put her in the public light versus the times that they've seemed to hide her weirdly. I don't know. I just feel like she's not being set up for success. And then I feel like there's some dysfunction within her office that is further hindering her ability to shine in this role. You can see Joe Biden applying his own life experience, particularly as vice president here. He got tasked with difficult topics, right? He got the economic crisis and negotiating with the car dealers. I think that that was one of the big thing he did. 
didn't he do like some the sexual assault on campus? And so like you can see like, well, this is what they did for me and it worked, so I'll do it to her. But they're different. It's not the same thing. And, you know, I have not read the reports of her not being prepared, but honestly, it makes a lot of sense in the gaffes that she makes, particularly in interviews, because she panics and just talks. I don't need to depend on reporting. I've seen it happen enough. She gets in touch. She gets tough questions. She panics and she reacts a certain way that is bad and she needs to stop. But if she will not acknowledge that it's bad and then do the prep to avoid it, then that's on her. And I think that there is some stuff that is on her. I don't think that there's like any way to avoid the staffing issues that she's not supported by the right staff or she's not managing the staff or somebody's not managing. Something's going wrong there. But at the end of the day, it's her office and it's all going to come down on her if it's not being run well. And that's something that she's got to address. And I think that that's that's hard to avoid no matter the sort of bent of the reporting at this point. She had a mass exodus over the last few months of staff leaving, including Simone Sanders, who we both really like. There's always individual reasons for staffing changes, but it's just hard not to see that overall as an issue. I think all of that is right. I'm rooting for her. I really want this to be successful for her. I don't know that she can make the leap from this office to the next. And I don't know if she could do that under any circumstance, because as you said, this this role is ill-defined. Once you mm-hmm. actually have a record and when it's not really your record, that's tricky for anybody to deal with in today's media environment. I think some of those old assumptions don't apply anymore. So my wish for her, if I can just put into the universe a wish for her, it's not to do this scared. Like, don't approach this as a four year long presidential campaign or especially an eight year long presidential campaign. Just Play to your strengths, do your thing, approach it like it's the last office you're ever going to hold and make it count because it is historic no matter what happens next in her career. It's good for the country no matter what happens next in her career. And I just want her to like seize this moment. All right. Next up, we're going to talk about how the president's first year has gone. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour. Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. 
I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy please raise your right hand and repeat after me I, Joseph Robinette Biden, Jr., do solemnly swear. I, Joseph Robinette Biden, Jr., do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute. The office of President of the United States. Office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability. Will, to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. Thank President. You. So the first question is, how, how are we even going to measure this? How are we going to measure the first year and whether it's been successful? So PolitiFact does this thing where they track all the campaign promises. And so they're tracking 99 of his campaign promises. What I thought was interesting is that with Obama, they were tracking over 500. Hundred promises. Hope and change built on a lot of promises. He's kept 16% of them so far, and 46% are in the works, 24% are stalled. His success is a little bit lower than Obama's, but he also has fewer like failures and stalls. I think that is one way to track it. I don't feel like that's like the most successful or interesting way. It's just this like real numbers percentage game. Uh, but that's how PolitiFact is doing it. I mean, here we are participating in this problem, this problem, but it's a very arbitrary deadline, right? You run a campaign to be president for four years, and at the end of one year, everybody's like, did you do all the things? You know? <laughs> and that's not great. At the same time, 
it is an important milestone, especially when you're going into midterm elections. There are a lot of political realities here. So I don't think we're like dumb to think through this. But I also keep trying to remember that I think the standard is really hard to define. And and I'm even struggling with what is a constructive way for me to assess my feelings about things when you're in. The only reason I think it's helpful is because it is the time most presidents get like their major thing accomplished. Mm-hmm. You have this momentum. You have your newlywed period. You often have a Congress that matches your party. And then you get the midterms and everything changes. So it to me, it's like arbitrary, but not really, because I do think there is this political reality that the first year is when they get a lot of stuff done. And I think, you know, as I look back over his promises, particularly in his inauguration, I, I think that if you if we're going to, like, tick off the promises, I think the inauguration speech and, like, I'm not running, I've won, and here's what I think we can do is a much more helpful standard. And he, you know, in his inauguration speech, he laid out COVID and climate, racial justice, and the economy. This is, like, sort of four major areas of focus. And I think, you know, when you look at that and you look at his particularly like his legislative achievements. I mean, he had two major pieces of legislation get through, one of which was bipartisan. Trump can't say the same, neither can Obama. And so I think that, you know, that's he he deserves credit for that. He deserves credit for getting the American Rescue Plan through and getting a bipartisan infrastructure investment through. I think that those are major, major accomplishments. So we'll start with the positive things. <laughs> before we get into many critiques. But I mean, I just don't think you can downplay that that is a major achievement. I've been thinking a lot about expectations and how expectations influence how I feel about lots of things I was saying to Sarah before we started recording. I'm a little down today because I expected to just magically feel totally better from COVID. And I don't. Oh, there's a theme there for Biden's so first year for show. And there's a theme, right? <laughs> and so I think what, what makes it so difficult to hold on to those successes is that the expectations were so high for what would happen legislatively. Because truly, if in his four years they got the bipartisan infrastructure bill, that will change this country forever. That is a monumental achievement that every person who had a piece in it should feel so proud of and that will have a lasting legacy. And so to say... I wish every Democrat were walking around in the country saying, in the first year, we got the biggest thing. We did the biggest thing we could possibly do in the first year. How amazing is that? How many jobs are going to come from that? How much investment in our economy is going to come from that? How much are you 10 years from now going to be walking through an airport or something and saying, look at what we did, you know, back in 2021 in the middle of a pandemic and a terrible economic situation. We made this happen. I wish that that were like the bragging point because it really is phenomenal. Well, and they were supposed to do that. There was a plan to do that. We're going to go through. We're going to barnstorm. And I think the reality is you had a Delta surge. You had an Omicron surge. It disrupts those plans. You have other things that come to the president's desk that disrupts those plans. And I think as much as I appreciate we have had another president dealing with this pandemic, A president dealing with a pandemic in his fourth year and a president dealing with a pandemic in his first year, to me, are two very different things. And I think, yeah, it's interesting to compare him to Trump or Obama and past presidents. But 
This is a pandemic. It changes everything. And I think that's what the Biden administration has had to learn over and over and over again. I think that they, you know, came in strong with this. We're going to we're going to hit Independence Day in July. Now, I don't think it's as simple as we got the Delta surge and his polling numbers dropped. I think the Afghanistan withdrawal is a huge part of why people's perception of him changed so dramatically last summer. But I do think, you know, they took a pretty singular political even approach to the pandemic in many ways. How many times do we have to learn that it doesn't work that way in our own lives, in state government, in local government, in school districts, and particularly in the federal government? The name of the day is adaptation, not we stick to this strategy, not we set a goal. And I mean, I think that COVID and beyond what's happened with Biden, too, is he sets aggressive goals and good for him. But they can really bite you when you don't achieve everything you want to. I don't disagree with you at all about the impact of COVID. I do think legislatively, the reason that we aren't having a celebration of the infrastructure package is because members of the House and Senate from the Democratic Party aren't allowing that celebration. Mm. They are so focused on other giant legislative achievements that they'd like to get on the board, that the story is down in the dumps about what we haven't done instead of enthusiasm about what we have done. And I also get that the average person isn't like infrastructure, woo. But I think that you could make it real for people if you really right, brought it to your states and towns, which Republicans are doing a better job of. Republicans are blasting out these emails. Look at all this money we're bringing right here to Iowa. I voted against it, but I'm taking credit for what it's going to do here in in this community. And like, that's smart, you know? Right. But the, the Biden administration shouldn't wait around for the Democrats in Congress to get in line. They can be out there talking about that, mm-hmm. which they were supposed to do and then sort of stopped, I think probably because of the surges. But they don't have to wait on them. They don't have to wait for the squad to get on board, which they should. You know, look, I'm not mad at the squad or the progressive caucus for being like, I'm not going to tout this because they've gotten screwed. They were promised their end of the bargain and they didn't get it. And I'd be mad, too. But the Biden administration doesn't have to wait for that. This gets back to the question, though, of what are you evaluating How much are you evaluating the Biden administration versus Democratic leadership in Congress versus Mm -hmm. a democratically controlled Congress by narrow majorities versus what's happening in your state around COVID and business and supply chain? I mean, I think overall, like we can break these things apart. And the truth is that when we all vote in the midterms, it's going to be like, how am I feeling about things? And that's that's a soup of all those factors, not just Biden. Well, I mean, I think what's unique to Biden, and he named this in what I thought was one of the most insightful parts of his press conference yesterday, which is there are benefits of having such an experienced president. There is also downsides of having such an experienced president who sent decades as a senator, which is that's a hard mode to get out of. And he said, I think I've learned that people don't want a senator president. They want a president. And the part of the reason we're wrapped up in Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and the the congressional side of is he doing a good job is because he's made it that way. And he it likes the negotiation and he likes the the horse trading and he liked being a senator and he was good at it. 
And I think part of what can be laid at the administration's feet is not pivoting from the legislative branch to the executive branches and using the power of the executive branch to push a different narrative beyond just I'm out here being bipartisan and negotiating with people, which I think people like and I think people value. But that cannot be the only thing that's being talked about. And I think when Joe Manchin seems more powerful than you do, that's going to hurt your polling. It just is. What do you want to talk about next? I think the part of this with COVID in particular, where you can pull Congress out of the equation and really talk about the Biden administration's job, is this focus on vaccination and really dropping the ball when it came to testing and masking. Now, there are countries that do testing and masking great, and they still had an Omicron surge, right? So I don't ever want to lose the fact of like, we're not doing this in a bubble, and we certainly don't have to evaluate it in a bubble because we have other countries that are dealing with pandemics, and we can see what's working and what isn't. And there's not a country short of like poor Tonga, who's like, don't even help us recover from a volcano because you'll bring COVID here. We only had one case that can really seclude itself and, you know, step back from the global economy in a way that will preventive spread. But I think it's, you know, it's a fair criticism to say that the Biden administration, along with many governors, including our own, just said, like, it's not worth the political capital to shut down or use mask mandates. I mean, to the point where they were discouraging states from taking mask mandates up again to say, like, we can't we can't do this. There's definitely been sort of a political bent to both their pressure on the CDC, which I think was fair and well done <laughs> for what it's worth around the booster shots. But also led to confusing messaging, like everything's open, vaccinated people don't have to wear masks. Oh, here we go with Delta. So, I mean, I think that they've made mistakes. I'm not, you know, I don't think it's some fundamental failure. This is an impossibly hard task to manage a country like ours um, at the federal level through a pandemic. But that's also, I don't want to also say like it's so hard that does that doesn't mean we can't learn lessons and do things differently the next time. And I hope they've learned those lessons. I hope they learn that like picking one strategy is not going to work. I hope they've learned that in an effort to encourage vaccination, using any other sort of regulatory framework to push masking or testing is still the right thing. This idea that like it might discourage vaccination, that's bananas. We don't, that's no. And I hope they've learned from that too. I think that I don't yet have enough perspective to fairly critique the COVID response of just the administration. Because I am stuck in just how do I feel overall about it. When I think about how I feel overall, I am frustrated everywhere with an absence of honest conversation about trade-offs. In my mind, something that we as American citizens, not all of us, but enough of us for it to be really impactful in terms of how this thing has has proceeded (laughs) – We have shown with our behavior that we will accept a certain amount of transmission, hospitalization, and death because we want our lives to feel pretty normal. We didn't like take a ballot on that, but that is how people have have shown up in their behavior, that we will accept a certain amount of transmission, hospitalization, and death. And I'm not judging that as right or wrong. I think that there are some really difficult moral and ethical questions embedded in in every aspect of what we do to mitigate a pandemic. But knowing that, seeing we've got a certain percentage of this population that is not going to get a vaccine in time 
for us to have vaccinated to the point where we can not worry so much about variants, right? There was there was a timing element to the vaccines. There's a continued life to being vaccinated that is helpful as a personal protective device. But as a public health tool, there was a timing element, right? And once we passed that moment, whenever it might have been, or some range of moments, and we saw, hey, the American public is not getting this thing fast enough to do this, then we needed to bring in some other tools, I would like even in our state to have some conversations. The The school conversation is so stuck right now. We're still assessing should schools be open or closed as though we're talking about transmission. We're past that. It's a logistical conversation now. We have so many people who are sick. Can we operate the school? Our kids actually better off at school if you've got a teacher who on her planning period has three classes in a gym just to have someone supervising the children, right? That's a different discussion. And I just feel like from a leadership perspective, we're talking always in tactics about COVID and not enough about strategy. At this stage of the pandemic, what's the strategy? What numbers do we care about? Maybe we don't care about transmission anymore. Maybe what we care about is hospitalization. What What is the strategy? And things like the four rapid tests. I mean, I signed up to get them. Thanks. But like that to me is just a a bad tactic at this point in the pandemic that is for political show. And and that disappoints me. It feels often, and I mean with the Biden administration, the CDC, the FDA, even state policies, that we decide what we can successfully communicate and make the public health policy fit that when it feels very much like it should be the opposite. It should be what public health policy will be most successful. And then we will communicate that the best we can. I heard Zanep Dufeci on Ezra Klein's podcast describe pandemics as communication emergencies. And I thought, oh, that's it. That is it. That's exactly what this is. And look, that's enough. Thinking about that, those just those two things, what policy will be most successful and how do we communicate that? That's enough. When you put a layer of politics over top of it, ooh, then it's going to get really hard. And I think that layer of politics on top of it is where some of the Biden administration's biggest missteps have come. It's also not what they promised the American people. We're going to take politics out of it. We're going to follow the science. We're going to do this thing. But they haven't. And look, I'm not even necessarily mad at them. I think that's also it would be a very hard task to, to really remove politics from all of it because the pandemic has become political. But I expected them to try a little harder than they have. You know, the irony is I think there was a lot of economic factors that they were taking into account. And look, the things they focused on, getting Americans vaccinated and keeping the economy successful, they did well. They went from like 2 million vaccinated Americans to like 200 million vaccinated Americans. And the economy is doing well. We added more jobs than we ever have. Wages are up nearly 5%. Unemployment has fallen. So the things that they were focusing on, they succeeded at, right? The brutal part of that is... It's like it's exactly what you said. Well, yeah, but if people still feel like COVID is never ending, you're not going to get credit for that. And if people still feel like inflation is too high, you're not going to get credit for that either. And so it really is. It's a it's a do it all, do it all well, which, again, is hard, if not impossible. But I think there's a lot in Biden's first year of sort of overpromising, under delivering. And some of that is just has to be laid at the pandemic's feet, I think, because it's just this it's behemoth that he's dragging around all the time that is that is very difficult to, 
not impossible. He can't control it, right? That's what we're all learning. Like, we can all want the pandemic to be over all we want, but it, it just, that's not how it's going to happen. My problem, and I argued with Chad a little bit about this this morning because he was saying the same thing. They have not taken the politics out of it. I don't think you should take the politics out of it because so much of what's happening is about human behavior and it's about prioritization. There are policy judgments to be made here around what are we willing to accept in terms of transmission. There are policy judgments. I mean, I don't think we should, whatever the scientists have to tell us, which I respect and care about and I think should be very important in our equation, we should be managing Omicron differently than Delta. We should, right? It should feel different. It. We need to decide as a society what over means to us. Because as you and I have talked about a million times, we're not going to have a day when when Anthony Fauci comes to a microphone and says, congratulations, SARS-CoV-2 is gone from the planet. It's not going to happen that way. So we have to, there, it's a political decision what over means. And that's that missing strategy that I'm talking about. I kind of want... I kind of want to hear from the Biden administration, you know, when can we get things mostly back to normal? Well, here are the factors that we're looking for. And from where I sit, a lot of those factors are about infrastructure. It's about the fact that our hospitals are overwhelmed right now, that we don't, that we have a lot of staff out because people are getting sick. So let's talk. That's not a follow the science question. That's a public policy question. How do we deal with the fact that we got a lot of transmission going, even if it's milder transmission? Yeah, but I'm not talking about that sort of politics. I'm talking about people will be mad if we put mass mandates in again. And we don't want to make people mad and we don't want to spend that political capital. That's a different sort of political calculus than where are we at? What are our policy goals? And I think they were doing a little too much of the former and not enough of the latter. But look, the other really important factor here is they had a aggressive misinformation campaign coming from the other party. Just purposeful misinformation, you know, Fox News fully vaccinated anchors out there spreading crap, criticizing every single thing, ginning up fear. You know, it, it would be hard to talk about shutting down when they're on there saying, see, we told you. he's." I mean, I remember vividly Facebook posts from friends of mine that were like, "There, it's here. He, the Democratic president, he's going to shut us all down. And like, this is the first, you know, of many Attacks on your liberty, like, so I, I get it. And I, I don't want to, you know, say, like, just ignore them because that it was a focused effort to undermine him. Now, I don't know why he was surprised by that, which he talked about in the press conference. I was surprised by their level of opposition. Really? At this point? OK. But I think that was, you know, you can't you can't underemphasize the impact of all of that effort. Yeah. Two things about that. I think unquestionably, this is like the worst time to be the president. It's a horrible time to be the president. And I don't I don't mean for any of my comments to come across like I'm giving him a failing grade. I'm not even trying to grade them. Mm-mm. I can't I can't step back from my own emotions enough to fairly assess this administration. I want to be honest about that. I watched uh, that scene with Louisa from Encanto. I am sure that that's how Joe Biden feels, that pressure like a drip, drip, drip. Like, I I understand how awful this is. I understand that I can't comprehend how awful it is every day to have to do this job. And the second thing I want to say is, as I have critiques of this administration, even real disappointments and frustrations, they are normal. And that's a relief. Like, 
I would mm-hmm. probably disagree. If I think about people I voted for to be the president, I'm certain I would disagree with how a President Romney handled a pandemic. I'm certain I would have disagreement with how a President McCain would have handled a pandemic. You know, when you're the president, everybody's going to have problems with what you do because it is an impossibly difficult job, right? And there is such a relief to just be able to say like, yeah, I don't I don't really like the policy around this instead of, he said, what? Oh my God, that's so embarrassing. That's so harmful to people. They're, they're, you know, the callousness of the previous four years being gone has helped me settle tremendously. It's, it's nice to be able to say, have they handled this well instead of, are we going to like make it to tomorrow? I'm not sure. Well, and I think Trump just put us in this very like simplistic binary frame of mind and it's almost like I feel the Biden administration started their term like that, too. Well, we're not him. So everything's got to be better. Everything's got to be simple. You see it with their approach to COVID. We'll just we'll just vaccinate our way to independence in July. You see it with the economy. Well, you we can't shut down because it's overspending on goods and that inflation's not that bad. You see it with the Afghanistan withdrawal. We're going to get out no matter what, and it won't be that bad. You see it with the approach to China. Well, we're going to build up our alliances here with almost no sort of anticipation that that could complicate our alliances in Europe. Like like this very simple, like, well, the good guys are back in charge. People who care and are paying attention are back in charge. And so things will just go our way. And look, knowing what I know about Joe Biden, that's not a particularly surprising perspective from him. And it's fine. It's better. Again, Baron Trump, don't care. But like, I hope that he's learning from it. I think it's hard to take a curious open-minded, sort of adaptable posture at 78 years old. I think the fact that he did stand up for two hours and take questions is a good sign that he's like, okay, well, we got to keep working on things and I'm up for critique and I'm up for like, where do I need to change the voices in the room? Sounds like he's doing. I'd be a little worried about my job. He emphasized so much about new voices in the room and getting out and traveling and all that. And again, that sort of self-awareness of I'm not a senator anymore. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that this exercise isn't just beneficial for all of us, but beneficial for him. If for no other reason, then maybe that's why we should do this one-year exercise. So it puts a little pressure on, you know, a job where the urgent can always and forever overwhelm the important to take a beat and think what's working and what's not. I I really respect that he took all the questions. He made such a mess on Ukraine. I don't. It is difficult to continue to hold out hope for the level of competence that we expected from this administration. And competence is like too low a bar. I think that that I and again, this is all expectations. I was holding out hope for a, a professionalism around foreign policy. And when he talked about Russia perhaps doing a minor incursion, I mean, just the 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 he said way too much about this, right? Because this press conference wasn't just for American media, even though that's probably principally who it was for. Everybody overseas is listening. And I feel, oh, it's just like a gut punch that he made such a mess of his remarks about Ukraine. I think those those gaffes are so reflective of being a senator, where you could be in the meetings and you could hear those perspectives. He just was repeating something he'd heard to me, like they'd had that conversation because that's the like level of detail you have in national security conversations. Okay, well, what if it's this? Are we going to do anything about that? Probably not. 
That, to me, sounds exactly like something that was happening in a national security conversation. As a senator, you don't need to be as careful about not repeating that stuff. Because he's like the straight shooter, so he's just, you know, he's being straight about what he heard in the national security meeting and what the actual approach is. You can't do that when you're the president. And he'll have to learn that 16 different ways. To be fair, I did not give that kind of grace to Donald Trump when he was just like shooting off the hip the way a businessman Mm -hmm. would about foreign policy stuff. Like, you got to learn fast. And he was the vice president. He does know diplomatically what a big deal those kinds of remarks are. He is 78. Like, he, this is... This is a thing that he should not do. And it is a problem. And I know that the average American doesn't give a crap about what's going on yet with Ukraine. I totally understand that that is not at the top of people's priority list. That could become a thing very, very quickly. I also have no particular feeling about what the right way to handle this situation is. Because again, what I'm hearing from this administration is all tactics. If they do this, we'll respond this way. Instead of, here's our strategy. We have heard him talk about his presidency as autocracy versus democracy. Okay, cool. That's the vision. What's the strategy that supports that vision? When you actively have someone seeking to add territory to their empire, right? Like these are really hard questions that I would interpret a lot of responses from the administration as perfectly reasonable responses, but you cannot shoot off at the mouth like that. It's just it's just so unprofessional from him and it's it's a big problem, I think. The other two things he mentioned in his inauguration speech were climate, which I think is a sort of good adjacent topic to Ukraine because it's just so dependent on the posture of the rest of the world. And I think there was a lot of competence within the administration, probably some rightfully to be laid at the feet of John Kerry, who took this on and got us back in the Paris Accords and made real progress at the last global summit. And then, of course, the fourth topic is racial justice. And I think the fact that we haven't spent a lot of time on it because our conversation has been taken up by COVID and the economy and Afghanistan withdrawal and all these other challenges, not to mention the two huge legislative packages that went through Congress, is why that it didn't get a lot of time from the administration. It's because other things are just taking up a massive amount of oxygen in the room. And it feels very like, well, we got through all this other stuff now, so now we'll pay attention to voting rights. I think you you feel that frustration with activists on the ground and with lots of people who care deeply about these issues. And I think it's just that it's hard. Four was an aggressive number. Let's put it that way. Four was an aggressive number in the inauguration in the middle of a pandemic. And so I think the results of this first year show show that. But I hope like, you know, it's just one of four. I hope that these continue to be his priorities. And I hope that, you know, voting rights in particular, I, I was so frustrated to read that there was this, you know, bipartisan effort around the Electoral Voting Act. And people were like, oh, it's a trap. The Republicans, it's a trap. And I'm like, no, it's just just do it, guys. Like, no, get a win. Take a win where you can. I mean, that's definitely probably going to be the reality of of at least the next couple years of the Biden presidency, because, you know, for all our complaining about Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, it would looked a lot different if Georgia had not gone Democratic. He would have got we wouldn't be talking about legislative wins. We would have spent a lot more time, I think, on just congressional deadlock. And I think that could be the reality post midterm that he'll have to deal with is even less room to negotiate and maneuver 
and prioritize these issues. There's a lot more to say about voting rights. That's a conversation that I think we'll get into in a lot more depth here on Tuesday. I don't want to give short shrift to those issues of racial justice either. And I think that's an area like many of the issues the Biden administration has been dealing with. The biggest lifts aren't really within their scope. The biggest lifts around racial justice are mostly at the state level within the private sector. You know, there, there, are, there are things that they can do, but they can't do everything that I'm sure that they would like to. I do think that they, especially through those first day executive orders, communicated a tone and an intent that was needed in terms of greater respect for people. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. So I just say, like I said, I hope they take this first year mark for what it is, you know, a moment to say what worked and what didn't, what needs to be changed. It sounds like he's going to do that. I don't expect perfection on that. There will things that will continue to be weaknesses of him and struggles of the administration. But I still think, you know, it's valuable to take a moment and assess how he did for this first year. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. 
Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Beth, there's this new game. It's called Wordle. Have you heard of it? I love it. I'm addicted. It's okay. my favorite. It's a, such but a treat. But you can't really morning. be addicted. That's what's so beautiful about it. People be sending me like, oh, here's the backlog or here's another game where you can play as many as you want. No, people, I don't want to do that. I like that there's just one a day. Well, that's what I think is so beautiful about it. I can't get tired of it because it's just mm-hmm. that that little thing to look forward to in the morning. I get to do a new Wordle. It's so fun. So for you who don't know, Josh Wardle with an A created this game for his partner who loves word games. I love the New York Times headline. It was like, Wordle is a love story. So sweet. Um, So he created this game for like just her to play. I think he's like a software engineer. And then they opened it up to the public. And now everybody plays it. If you see those weird grids in your Facebook feed with like the black, yellow, and green boxes, it's Wordle. It's just a URL. It is not an app. You just have to go to the website. You get six chances to guess a five-letter word. A yellow tile means the letter is in there somewhere, but not in the right place. A green tile means that the word or the letter is in the right place. Now, Beth, do you guess the same? Do you start with the same word every day? No. Same five-letter word? No. Somebody had a great tweet about how their starting word is like a five-letter mood ring, and that's exactly how I operate. I totally that's go funny. with just how I'm feeling. Well, you told me Chad uses nears, and I thought he that's He uses good. rents. Rents. R-E-N-T-S. Oh, rents. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I was using nears. Um, and nears was working pretty good. Nicholas, though, started using audio because then you get A-U-I-N-O, which I think is a very strong choice. I'm going to try audio for a while. I do like using the same weird word to sort of like see how it plays. Here's another strategy I've taken. Sometimes I put a yellow tile in the same place knowing it's the wrong placement, or I use a letter I know is not in the word. Just to, like, eliminate a grouping. And it served me pretty well, like, to not just kill myself never to use the same thing twice or, like, to not use an incorrect tile, basically. And sometimes I think that's helpful. I think anytime you can get consonant blends checked off, that helps a lot. Yeah, right. Like P-H-G-H. Yes. No, I totally agree. That's That's what I'm using that for. And Helen Peterson had a post where she was like, why does this make me feel so much better, like, a crossword than Candy Crush? Now, do you do crossword puzzles? Oh, I love crossword puzzles. I like the easy New York Times crossword puzzle. I'm trying to do the Sunday. I'm not here for that life. But I love Monday through Wednesday. But I also spent a significant portion of my college career playing Candy Crush. I thought maybe I could become a professional Candy Crush player. And then Nicholas told me that wasn't a thing. But I think she's right. One feels like life-giving and one feels life-sucking. And I think it's the like... It's not just repetitive guessing. There is definitely a guessing aspect of Wordle. But there's also a part of strategy. And it just feels like you're... Maybe it's just like feeding all our inner SAT, ACT test junkies. You're like, you're trying to build your vocabulary. (laughs) Here it is. Well, it's got a little bit of that sense of like, 
Sally does not sit beside Robert, but she does sit beside Timothy. Like there's that logical game in it that is kind of fun. For me, what's so great about it is that it's just that it's bite sized. That's why I I think crossword puzzles are fun if I've got an afternoon to kill, but I don't fold them into my day. Listen, that's why the Monday through Wednesday is so great. They don't take that long. And any game on my phone that is trying to get me to keep playing starts to feel life sucking. Even I love Duolingo, but I am so tired of like, you're falling out of the diamond league. You need to get, I mean, no, thank you. I just want to do five minutes a day of some Spanish and, and I'll be back tomorrow if I do it every day. That's pretty amazing, you know, and and I think Wordle just gets that we are all depleted by things that are saying, please give me more of your attention. Well, and I think it's the social aspect is fun. It's fun seeing everybody on Facebook. It's fun seeing all those people who are so proud of themselves on the second guess. Are you competitive with Chad about Wordle? Because I'm very competitive with Nicholas. We do it at the same time. But it doesn't feel like a competition to me, maybe because I just don't really have that instinct. I just think it's kind of fun to see how we broke. I love hearing the words that he walked yeah, through. Yeah, I do too. I think that's and, very fun. And the insight into his mind that that gives me. I know they can't tell us that because it would ruin the word for everybody, but it is fun to see, like in the, when people share it publicly. But, you know, I'm very competitive. He broke his, I've not broken my streak. Have you, have you got a day where you didn't get the word? Not yet. Me either. He he not, doesn't get the word regularly. I'm like, you're not trying hard enough. Um, but he often gets it in two, so it balances out. Makes me feel better when he doesn't. When he breaks his streak, I feel like super smart and better than him, which is a feeling I enjoy. But yeah, I just love it. I think it's so so fun. I'm almost always like a four or five to get the word, and and that's I had a run there. Nears was serving me well, where I got like two, three, two guesses or three guesses, like three or four days in a row. But man, it's fun. the last few days. I thought it'd been pretty hard. I think a group project just feels good. And that's what's so nice. Yeah. It's nice to see something positive on social media. Mm-hmm. I'm not mad about it. I love all the clever takes on it. You know, the kind of art projects that people are creating out of those blocks. Um, it's, it is nice to have something connective and, and yep. what there is, I can't think of a negative. You're not served an ad. Like there's right. just nothing negative about this right now. I do want to give Josh Wardle some money. How do I do yeah, that? They need to put to like a donate it. button on there. Totally. I want him to be rich from this gift to Josh, humanity. Josh, allow us to Venmo you. Yeah, Josh, come on, man. We want to give you some money for this gift that you've given to humanity that seems to have very little, if no negative sides. I mean, that's hard to do. It's hard to create a viral thing. That is like doesn't really have any negative. And I swear to God, if somebody goes through that man's tweets and finds something, I will be just don't live it. Just, just don't leave it alone. People need to be allowed to create within the scope of their genius and otherwise be human. We've got yes. to stop expecting that everything flows together. Like just just let this be one good a love thing. story. This love story that's that's viral and making us all a little bit happier as we surf the end of this Omicron wave. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are always so happy to be here with all of you. We will be back in your ears on our regular schedule next Tuesday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our Community Engagement Manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. 
Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Coors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Jared Minson. Emily Neasley. The Bettons! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Vallelli. Amy Whited. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. On January 6, 2021. Oh, that's not right. Let's say that again. Ooh, not, not January, January 6th. Not January 6th, <laughs> no. 